for that. It is glory just to walk with him. Um, absolutely love that line. I think uh, one of the things that I've learned, and I'm going to bother some of you as I say this, but as I've grown older, one of the things that I've, it's factual, I have grown older. Um, but as, I, as I've gotten older, just the continued understanding of what a privilege it absolutely is to even call him my Lord, to even walk with him at all, something that the simple act of walking with him is completely undeserved. Um, we're actually going to see a little bit of that there this morning. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're continuing where we've left off in our study here of Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 3, and we've just uh, walked through the first eight verses this past week as we walked through a very familiar text, a very familiar passage or poem, and we even mentioned the song from the 60s of turn, turn, turn. There's a time for everything. Uh, again, very familiar passage for so many. But as we walked through all of this, we saw that there is a time in verse 2 to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. And we walk all the way down and we see that God himself is in control of whether something is to live or to die, to be planted or not to be planted, to be built up or to be broken down. And so as we walked through this, one of the questions that we asked last week was, what time is it in your life? Uh, we looked at the difference of time, how it's not necessarily the way that we understand what time is it today, as if to say it's 11.15, which I think it was the exact same time last week, so well done. But understanding that there are different times that come in our lives. We've all endured different times. We've, we've been around times of building up. We've gone through times of, of breaking down or being broken down. We've gone through times of love, and we've also gone through times to hate. We've seen times of war. We've seen times of peace, that all of these aspects are continual. They continue on and on and on. And this morning we find our text of verses 9 through 15. Solomon writes this, he says, What profit hath he that worketh, and that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of man to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time, and he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything be taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth, requireth that which is past. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask this morning in this time as we, we open up and we study your word, we ask that you would allow us the, the attention that is required as we see these words, not as words of men, but words of the Almighty God. We ask that. For so many of us that you would open our eyes and open our ears to be able to receive that which you've given to us. And, and as we do each and every Sunday, as we see your word, we rejoice in the incredible privilege that it is to see you revealed page after page and to be able to, to so intimately be able to study out your word, the very words of the living God. Lord, I ask that you would guide us and lead us here this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 
verse 11 is where we're going to spend um, a majority of our time. And in verse 11, we see, it says that he has set, set the world in their heart. Uh, Romans 1 tells us that every man has a knowledge of God, that God has revealed himself to all mankind so that none are without excuse. Um, in one of the commentaries I was reading these past few weeks, it, it spoke of a missionary named Don Richardson. And I just wanted to read a brief portion of this. Don Richardson had traveled all over the world to demonstrate that people from every culture have a deep longing for God. It all started with the Sawi tribes of Dutch New Guinea, the headhunters whom Richardson went to serve in the 1950s. Though the bloodthirsty Sawi prized treachery as the highest virtue, they also had a sacred ritual for reconciling two tribes when they were at war. The chief's own son would be offered to the other tribe as a peace child. Richardson saw this ritual as a parable of the gospel, in which the chief of all chieftains made peace with the lost tribe of humanity by offering up his only son. Based on his experiences with the Sawi people, Richardson began to wonder if any other people groups had similar traditions or sacred rituals that served as redemptive analogies for the gospel. He discovered that many people groups, both ancient and modern, have partial knowledge of religious truth. Whether these beliefs come from what God has revealed in creation or from remnants of a faith passed down since biblical times, they bear witness to God and to the gift of his atoning grace. One of the things that he found, and he has numerous books that write of this, but in so many different cultures, seeing these different shades or shadows of the actual biblical truth that does exist, this existence of an eternal, this existence of a God. And we, we often can say, well, what if, what if this people group never understands that there is a God? What if they've never heard that there is a God? And I remember as a child, this used to be an incredible burden to me, this, this idea that if not every single person was told that there is a God that even exists, then what is it to be left for that person? It was a tremendous burden because I thought people are ignorant that there is a God. And yet so much of, of scripture that we see clearly outlines that everyone has this knowledge of God. And as we see there in verse 11, God has put eternity. He has put himself, the existence of who he is, in their very hearts. Which means that by extension that this morning, there's no one here that does not have an understanding or a knowledge of the existence of God. There is no one in any culture, any tribe, any tongue, in any location that does not have a knowledge of the divine power of God. And we see that in Romans chapter 1. We are innately born with a longing for another world. I don't know how many conversations you guys have with, with individuals, whether in the workplace or in the different churches and anyone that you come in contact with, but there's this innate longing of every person of something outside of what they currently experience. We look at the world and we say there has to be more than this. Uh, those of you that have been here for the last few months, we've walked through this in great detail in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes as, as the preacher Solomon surveys all that can be seen in the world and says, all of this is vanity. He sought the pleasures of the world and said, this does not bring me satisfaction. He had all of the money. He had made all of these incredibly beautiful gifts and all of these displays of beauty and said, this does not satisfy. In each and every step of the way, he found it to be vanity. 
But there's this incredible longing for another world that all of us come to at a different point in our life. We know that there is something outside of the temporal. We know that this world is eternal. He has said eternity in our hearts. Have you ever had a conversation with a person that absolutely denies the existence of God, but in the very same conversation says, but I know there's something more. There's something else out there. This can't be all of it. And we've gone through different um, artists. We've gone through different authors who have line after line had this fatalistic idea that just says, you know what? Everything's kind of the same day in and day out. I've been around for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and it's all the exact same every single day. Nothing ever changes. Nothing is new under the sun. There has to be something more. And as we've walked into chapter 3, we see that there's a time for everything. And after this, he continues down to now return to his question of one of our favorite topics in life, work. The question of work, a question that all of us have asked, largely uh, a question I was consumed by at 16 and led me to never want to get a job. The question, is it all even worth it? Is my work, is all of my labor even worth it? What sort of return am I going to get on my investment? Because I think we would all agree, none of us are setting out to work hard and to labor vigorously for zero return. We don't do well with that idea. One of the first questions when you're applying for a job or you're seeking a job is, how much am I going to get paid? This is a very common question. We want returns on our investment. And if it doesn't seem to match up with our work, we say, it isn't worth it. In chapter 2, he had this view. If you remember, um, slide up into chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, starting in verse 18. He says that he hates all of his labor under the sun because he's just going to leave it to the person who comes after him. He said, I'm going to work so hard, accrue so much, and then I'm just going to pass it off to the person after me. And who even knows if that person is going to be a wise person or a fool? This incredible question of, I'm going to pass this off, and I don't even know if my son, who, is who we pass it to, is going to squander it. Is this a concern that you have? You work, you labor, you save, you accrue, all to pass on to someone else, and you have no control over whether or not they will use those resources wisely or foolishly. And so his result is, if I can't enjoy it, it's vanity. It's worthless. It's not even worth the trouble of working. In verse 11, he draws greatly upon the very goodness of God as he opens up in verse 11 saying that he has made everything beautiful in his time. That God has made everything beautiful in his time. Not only is there a time for everything, but God does things at the right time. Do you believe that God does everything at the right time? Have you ever wanted a time in your life to last longer than it actually did? Um, I remember, and I, I read that old poem uh, months ago, but the idea of when you're a child, you're always looking forward to being an adult. You know, my kids right now, Benji and Maddie, are constantly telling me, you know, when I'm a mommy or when I'm a daddy, and I'm always trying to slow them down, like, you got some time, don't worry about it. But there's always this draw to wanting to be in the next phase of your life. You're a kid. You want to be a teenager. Teenagers are awesome. You're a teenager. Oh, this is, I don't get to do anything. I have freedom, but not really. It's the illusion of freedom as a teenager, and some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And then you become an adult, and you say, man, these responsibilities, 
all of these different things, I kind of wish I was back to just the easy life. We're always longing for different times in our life, but have you ever wanted a time in your life to last longer than it did? Saying, if only I had more time in this specific area of my life. Or even conversely, I wish this time in my life was a lot shorter. I feel like I've been in this time for way too long. I wish it were shorter. And here in verse 11, Solomon is clear as he understands that he has made everything beautiful in his time. We spend so much time looking at what it is to come and saying, I can't wait to get there, or looking back and saying, I wish I could only get that back, yet never embracing the beautiful, um, the, just the beauty of what God is doing in this present time. Think about your day today. Think about your week. Are, are you committed to enjoying and embracing the beauty that exists in this current time rather than simply looking ahead? And as we get older, we tend to reflect, we tend to look back more. And again, as I've gotten older, I've looked back at different things. And I know in 30 years, I'm going to spend a lot of time reflecting on things past, wishing as my children get older now, the oldest one being six, wishing that there was more time with my kids. You know, I, I tell Brittany all the time, Benji's six, he's a third of the way to 18. And then she wants to smack me for it. But my oldest is a third of the way to being out of the house. How incredibly tough it is to just look forward to this idea of eventually he's going to leave. Because as you, those of you with kids know, you never actually have enough time with them. That it's fleeting. It seems as if it is going all too quickly. But here he makes this incredible point, a dramatic shift from where we were in chapter 2, where he says that all of these things are vanity. He says that God has made everything beautiful in his time. This is not just at creation, but his continual providential care ever since, that God does everything decently and in order. That it's not some just kind of coincidence that things are occurring as they are today. That it's not a coincidence that you individually live in this present time. I think a few weeks ago we mentioned it and how often I've always heard it said, you know, I wish I could have been alive and existed and been around during the time of Jesus. Man, what that would have been like to see. How wonderful it would have been. How much greater my faith would be if I only lived when Jesus was walking. He has made everything beautiful in his time. You live today as you do because God saw for you to live in this present time. And a beautiful thing that it is that even Jesus himself says, it's better that I should go that the comforter may come. I always remember uh, whenever I would read through the history of the Bible and I would sit there and we'd see things like the flood. We'd see um, just these tremendous miracles either done by Jesus or these tremendous things that Moses would do. And I would look back and say, man, could you imagine what it would have been like to see the sea parted? What it would have been like to be there? How much more our faith would grow if we could have only seen those things? Completely not understanding the entire purpose was not to focus on just the act. Have you ever thought just, man, if only I could have seen the, the whole parting of the sea, I would absolutely believe in God. We have people now that say, if, G if God would show himself to me today, if God would just perform a miracle, if he would absolutely reveal himself, then I'll believe. 
And we're testing God. We're asking him to do a cheap parlor trick, trying to ask him to finally reveal himself in this way. One of the questions that Solomon here is getting at, and one of the questions that I would post to you this morning, as he says that he has made everything beautiful in his time and that there is a time for everything, do you believe in the timeliness of God? Do you believe in the very timeliness of God? But better yet, not only do you believe in it, do you trust in the timeliness of God? Because it's one thing to say, yes, God is orderly, God is good, God is timely, but it's entirely different to say, I firmly trust in what it is that he is doing in this present time. Which extends far beyond just our own individual life, does it not? It extends to the world at large. Do you trust in the providence of God in your life as well as in the life of others? You remember in Habakkuk chapter 2, he's sitting here kind of arguing with God, but doing it somewhat politely, you know, as politely as you can. But says, God, why do you allow the heathen to be so successful in this time? They're so opposed to you. They hate you. They're awful and wicked, and this is what they do, and you know it. How can you do this? How can you allow them to be in control, to have authority, to have power? And God harshly rebukes him and says, what I am doing in this time, and you can go through and read all throughout Habakkuk chapter 2. Do you trust in the timeliness of, of God, because we can look at the world today and we can look around and see it doesn't seem as if God is currently reigning and ruling today. What is he doing? Why does he allow this to happen? Why is he allowing all of these things to take place? And we sit back and we don't trust in the timeliness of God where we want an op- there's an open door where we wanted a closed one to be or a closed door that for years we've tried to kick down with all of our strength. And God continues to keep it shut. Do you trust in the very timeliness of God and that what he is doing is good and it is beautiful in his time? We see that God does everything at the exact right time. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4, the Savior was born when the fullness of time had come. Then in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, that the Savior died at just the right time. God's not looking at the world and just kind of saying, yeah, now's the time, and just casts out these things. It's predicted, it's foretold, it's planned, it's absolutely providential. And in verse 11, as he sets out and mentions that God has put eternity in our hearts, consider the promises that God has given. Are they temporal or are they eternal? I know it's a Baptist church, you guys can talk, it's okay. Right? Are they temporal or are they eternal? Eternal promises. He's an eternal God, an everlasting kingdom, an eternal priesthood, a salvation, a redemption, a life that is eternal. Contrast that with what is so popularly heard today of promises of material comforts and wealth and good health. These things which you cannot take with you the moment you die. All of your money, gone. All of your health, obviously, gone. All of these comforts and these things, they immediately are gone the minute you die. And yet the world continues to promise each and every one of us, this is what you need. This will give you security. That the only way you can have security in your life is by having more finances. And God wants you to be secure, so he's going to give you finances. 
I still struggle to find that promise in the Bible. Paul, consider his life. He learned to be content, whether brought high or brought low. Were there times where he had monetary blessings? Absolutely. But he was also blessed with the privilege to be in prison, chained to Roman guards for the sake of the ministry of the gospel. And so we see this contrast of the promises of God and the promises of the world as Solomon has already walked through in the first two chapters. This is his frustration from the very beginning. He's looking for meaning in life and finds it impossible to do with only that which he can feel, only that which the world can offer, only that with these material things. It's not only hard, but he finds it to be impossible because God has set eternity in our hearts. If you're here this morning and you are an atheist, you do not believe in the existence of God, the Bible knows something about you that you are not willing to acknowledge about yourself. But the Bible absolutely makes it clear that though we may seek to suppress a knowledge of God, we know that we cannot escape it. That those who reject the existence of God suppress that which they already know is true. And Romans 1, 18-32 outlines that so clearly. That in our best efforts, all we can do is hope to suppress it and ignore it. But there is no escaping the reality of a very real and existing and living God. Because eternity has been set in each and every one of our hearts. And this is our great burden. How many of you have seen Pilgrim's Progress? Or read it, sorry. movie just came out, and here I am thinking it's all new, right? Okay, a decent number of you. Think about the burden that Christian is carrying. There's this incredible burden. There's a longing that there's something outside of just what he is experiencing day in and day out, the constant monotony of life. And as he continues to be more exposed to the things that are true, the burden continues to grow. He understands his sinfulness before a perfect, righteous, and holy and just God. This burden continues to grow. And he hears about something called the celestial city, And as he sees this, he understands that this is why he was made, was to be in communion with God in this celestial city. But this is man's great burden. There's a longing of eternity, and we'll forever be unsatisfied until we find our purpose in our Creator. Because why is it that we were made? For his glory, not for ourselves. We walked through it in the Sunday school this morning. Man is not the center of the gospel. Man is not the center of everything that exists. God is at the center. God is the one who has made all things. God is the one who puts this purpose within our hearts. It's clear in Genesis 1 as well as in chapter 2 that we were made for God's presence, for his glory and for his pleasure. And so we see as we walk through chapter 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes, it's not a surprise that Solomon is continually vexed and perplexed when trying to find purpose and meaning in life without God. Those of you that are now Christians, those of you that believe absolutely in the atoning work of Christ, consider the way that you thought, the way that you lived prior. You're longing for something else. You don't find satisfaction in everything that the world offers. Yes, you may have a wonderful job, but that doesn't seem to do it. We all have friends and family that are wholly unsatisfied no matter how much they attain, no matter how much they accrue, no matter how many comforts they have. It does not satisfy. And it was never meant to. That every good thing 
that we have been given is meant to draw us and to return us back to God, not to glory in the gift itself. It's not a surprise that as Solomon walked through these chapters and he continues to say that it's vanity and that he even hated life itself, it's not a surprise that when we reject God, we turn away from him, that we completely lose any purpose or we have a strong misunderstanding of why it is that we are to live. Is it surprising when someone who chooses to live in the dark says that they can't see? Nobody, right? I remember when I was uh, 17, we were going to our junior, senior. It's kind of like a prom, but it was a small Christian school version of a prom. It was very odd. Some of you are like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, It's very strange, but I remember. So I ju- we just got a, a new car. It was a used car, but it was new to me. And I started driving. I was 630, and I hadn't really looked at all the different instruments. I didn't really know where anything was in the car. I wasn't trying to really understand it. I said, gas pedal, drive. We're good to go, okay? This is me as a 17-year-old, okay? And so I set out, and then so I picked up uh, the date who was just a good friend. It wasn't Brittany, but it was just a good friend, okay? Um, pick her up, and then it's about 7.30, 8 o'clock. Now we're driving to where we have to go. It's dark now, and we can't see. I don't know how to turn the headlights on in this car. <laughs> because when I left, and this is, again, giving you guys more insights into who I was, uh, when I left, sun was up. What do you mean, headlights? I don't need to find these out. And so I set out, now it's dark, and now we're driving on very, very busy roads in Flint, Michigan, and it's completely dark, can't see anything, and I got people honking their horns at me and trying to tell me to turn my lights on. And here I am, feeling like a fool, saying, I know they're not on, I don't know how to turn them on. And there wasn't lights on inside the car, so I couldn't see. Right? So because of my ignorance... Choosing to live in the dark, I cannot see things. Should I have been surprised that I can't see? No, if we were to turn off the lights in here now, turn everything off, say we all are choosing to live in the dark, and they all go off, what's going to happen? A few of you are going to sleep, okay? (laughs) Some of you are going to get funny and try to do different things, okay? You're going to run around and probably pick on somebody, Jamie especially, hopefully, okay? Yeah, take that, right? But when we choose to live in the dark, it's not a surprise that we can't see. All of us completely understand that. This is the complete understanding here of what he's trying to convey, is that man has this understanding. We have a longing for the things of God, for these eternal things, as God has set the world, set eternity in our hearts. We all know innately as created man, there is something past here. This is why false religions always will be around and they will continue to be so effective in so many ways. There's a longing for eternity. And anything that provides an answer, people naturally gravitate to it. But there's a problem in that. It's not absolutely true. And so this is our our great burden. We long for this eternity. And so people ask the question, well then why doesn't God do something and reveal himself to me. If there's this longing for eternity, there's this great longing for the things that are eternal, and yet I find no satisfaction, I can't find meaning in life, I'm lost and I'm confused, and I try every single step and every imaginable thing, what then am I to do? Why hasn't God revealed himself to me? But he has. He absolutely has. 
And Scripture makes it very clear in those things that have been created, God reveals his invisible attributes, his divine power, so that all men know that there is a God. There is no excuse. What a grace this burden of our longing is. Imagine if there is a God, that God created all things, that there's this reality that we understand is true, that we are sinners before God, that the only way that we can be made right with him is through the believing in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that everything we know required for salvation is true. Yet there is no longing in our hearts for those things of God. There is no longing in our heart for any sense of eternity. That we're left completely ignorant of all of these things. What a burden that would be. Yet what a grace it is that God has put eternity in the hearts of every man and every woman to draw us to himself. C.S. Lewis put this longing as a, the idea of a scent of a flower not yet found, or the echo of a tune not yet heard, or news from a country that we have not visited. And so we see now then in verse 12, it says, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Here he encourages us to take the time that we have been given and use it to joyfully serve our God. Joyfully, don't pass over the joyfully serving our God. What a joy it is to come into his presence. What a joy it is to serve God. Do you rejoice? Do you find great joy in service to God? And here he mentions these things that we are to do good. These are the things that we see in Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 that God has given for each of us to do. And he calls these things God's gift. And quickly to, to close, we see verses 14 through 15. He says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. A simple encouragement this morning is to let God be God. How incredibly simple and basic that sounds but how often I tend to try to get in the way and say, God, I know that you know all things. I know that all I understand is from my own perspective, my own viewpoint. But I think you could be doing these things a little bit better. Why do you allow this to happen? I don't get it. That's dumb. This doesn't make sense. God has a perfect knowledge of all things. And he is much better at being God than we are. And what a, a privilege and a joy it is to believe and to know that. And so why does he do what he does? He tells us here at the end of verse 14, that men should fear before him. Initially, this comes off as a very sobering and a very uh, negative understanding that, that he does these things so that man would fear before him. But we understand from the whole of Scripture that the fear of the Lord is perhaps one of the most positive concepts throughout all of Scripture that it is the beginning of wisdom, that we are to have reverence and stand in awe before the majesty of the God who has made all things. The fear of the Lord. And if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, you know that ultimately this is Solomon's conclusion in chapter 12, verse 13, to fear 
God. Verse 15, and we'll, and we'll stop here. It says that God requires that which is past. Do you believe that ultimately God is redeeming those things which are past? Do you believe that God is a God who redeems those things which were lost, that seeks and saves those things which are lost? Do you believe that? And do you trust that he knows how to do it, that he is ordering our steps in the best way that is possible, that in his wisdom and his goodness he will continue to guide and to lead us into all truth, and that there is no greater authority than God himself. I think through these verses, and I see it, and what an incredible encouragement that it is to simply take away the beautiful trust in, in the sovereignty of God, to understand that God is over all things, that he is in control of all things. So as things prop up in our lives and as we're looking for a door to open that seems closed and we get bitter and we complain and we grumble, we have to trust that God is the one who knows best. Where you are today likely would not have happened if you had your way every step of your life. I know I wouldn't be here, and not just in Colorado. I mean, possibly even alive. And some of you are saying, yeah, I got you beat on that one. Do you remember how much God has already redeemed you from? And what a great promise it is of eternal redemption. Trust and joy and rejoice in the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. We thank you that as we see these simple verses here in Ecclesiastes, that, that we can have complete and full trust, not only in your word, but in what it tells us of who you are, that we are to absolutely trust you in all things, that there is nothing outside of your control, that you are the, the true and living God who has made all things, who continues to providentially care for all things, and it's by all things, God, we ask that in this time that you would continue to impress upon our hearts our great desire and a great longing to search after you, that you have put it in our hearts, that there is something far outside of just what we see, just what we experience, and just what we know here on this earth in the material and in the temporal. But we understand that there is a great longing on each and every heart for eternity. Lord, we understand the incredible significance of of our sin separating us from you so much so that in the song that we sang this morning that in your love that it was written in red that by the blood of your son Jesus Christ that you can reconcile a sinner back to yourself. That it's only through the work of what Christ has done on the cross that anyone would be saved. And Lord, this morning I ask that and I encourage anyone here that has not trusted in you, that does not, Scripture tells us to repent and to believe. To believe that you, God, sent your only begotten Son to this earth to live a perfect and sinless life, perfectly fulfilling all the law and the prophets, perfectly fulfilling and upholding your holy and righteous standard. And in doing so, humbling himself with perfect obedience, perfect submission to your will, so much so, even to death upon a cross. God, we praise you and we rejoice in the fact that, that Christ didn't remain dead, but three days later he rose again, 
ascending to the Father, forever making intercession on our behalf. Lord, what a beautiful truth it is to know that we have redemption and salvation in you simply by grace through the work of Christ. And Lord, if, if we can believe that you are capable and that you have done all of these things, how could we ever not trust you? How could we ever not trust you perfectly and completely, even when it concerns time? Lord, I ask that you continue to grow our affections for you each and every day and in our times. In Jesus' name, amen.